Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is a privilege, a scary privilege, but a privilege nonetheless to stand before you this morning and preach God's Word. We were told in preaching class never to tell the audience that you were nervous, and thankfully Pastor Harris already said it, so I'm, I'm not going to mention it. Turn in your Bibles with me, please, to Jonah chapter 2. As Pastor Harris mentioned, Mr. Baum preached from Jonah chapter 1, what, seven Seven months ago? Six, seven? Something like that. It's been a long time. And it is my task this morning to preach from Jonah chapter 2. And thankfully, the story of Jonah is well known. Before we continue on, would you please join me in a word of prayer? Holy Spirit, I pray that in these next minutes you would guide my thoughts and my words. I pray that you would help us not only to hear your word, but to be changed by your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jonah chapter 2 is a prayer. In fact, it is Jonah's prayer that he prays when he is inside of the great fish. But in order to, to better understand the prayer, it's important to understand the setting of this prayer, it's important to understand where Jonah is at and why Jonah is praying this prayer so that we can better understand the prayer itself. Now, the whole theme of the book of Jonah, the point of the book of Jonah is this, God will evangelize the city of Nineveh and he will use his prophet Jonah to do so. Or more simply put, God will rescue Nineveh and he's going to use Jonah to do so. And we see that in the first verses of chapter 1 where God calls Jonah to do exactly that, to go to Nineveh, to preach the gospel, to preach repentance. And yet we see that Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, does the exact opposite and he rebels and he disobeys. And just just think with me for a second. Yes, the, the command to go preach to the Ninevites was a difficult command, it was, a, it was a hard command. Jonah was scared that he probably was going to lose his life. And yet, it's kind of surprising, isn't it, that the prophet of the Lord so easily runs away and blatantly rebels against the Lord? I mean, just think of it. After all, what is Jonah's job? His, his job description is to proclaim the word of God to the people of God. That's Jonah's calling. That's why Jonah is there on earth. That's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to proclaim the word of God. Also, just think of, think of the spiritual advantages, I guess you could say, that Jonah had um, above the other Israelites. He, he had personal communication with God. He, he heard God's voice. He spoke to God. If God wanted to speak to his people, he would speak to Jonah, and Jonah would proclaim his word. Think about it. Also, Jonah would have, would have known God on a, on a deeper, more real level than many of the Israelites would because he was God's prophet. And yet, we see that Jonah rebels and disobeys, and he, he runs away from Nineveh. In fact, he goes in the opposite direction, and he goes down to Joppa, which is a port city, and his ultimate destination is to get to Tarshish. And he gets in a boat, and he goes down and he falls asleep. But remember, the purpose, the theme of the book, 
God will rescue Nineveh, and he will do so through his prophet Jonah. So we see in in chapter 1 also that God begins to to work on Jonah. He begins begins to, to turn Jonah, and he does so several ways. He does so, first of all, through a storm. God sends a storm, and it's such a frightful storm, such a big storm, that the sailors on the boat in which Jonah finds himself are terrified, and they think they are going to lose their lives. And you know the story well. Jonah wakes up, and for the first time, he realizes that God is the one sending this storm, and he tells the sailors, you're going to have to throw me into the sea for this storm to be called so, calmed. So God uses a storm. He also uses a fish. He causes a fish, as we know the story well, to, to come and to swallow Jonah. And for, for those of you who are like me, who grew up in church, we probably don't think twice about the fish swallowing Jonah, right? I mean, I've, I've heard this story hundreds of times. I've been taught it. I don't think much of the fish. But perhaps you're here this morning, and it's, it's your first time hearing this story, or you're new to church, and you say, wait a minute, you guys actually believe that a, that a fish swallowed a human? Are you, are, is that what you're saying, Dan? And the simple answer to that question is yes, we do believe it. And the main reason we believe it is because God clearly says so in his word. He tells us this story, and we believe that God's word is true. We believe that there's no mistake in it. And also, throughout history, there have been multiple accounts of fish swallowing humans. In fact, one, there's one historical account where they found, sailors found a horse inside of a fish, of all things. Um, Sinclair Ferguson, though, in his commentary on Jonah, says this about this miraculous, um, th- this miraculous occurrence of the fish sh- swallowing Jonah. He says, while it is commendable that we should carefully examine the authenticity of such tales, the tales being finding humans and horses and, and fish, there are reasons for caution as we do so. The most important is, of course, that too much discussion about the great fish can divert us from the real issue. The narrative is not really about the fish at all. It has only a a walk-on part in the scripping drama. Focus on the great fish, and we may lose sight of the great God. So yes, the fish is part of the account, but it's not the whole account. It's just a small part, part of the account. The account is about God rescuing Nineveh and using his prophet Jonah to do so. And now we get to the setting of this prayer that we're going to look at together in chapter 2. Think about it. Jonah has gone through a storm. He's now finds himself in the belly of a fish. He's in squelchy uncomfortableness. He's in darkness. He's exhausted. But more so than that, he is he's definitely feeling the effects of his sin. I mean, what else is he going to do in the fish? He's in there for three days and three nights, and we're not told exactly when it is that Jonah prays this prayer, but it's just him and his thoughts, him and his soul inside the fish with nothing else. And you get this sense that Jonah is just incredibly weighed down by his sin. He's literally, spiritually and physically, he's literally in the depths of despair, you, you wonder how many times he must have asked himself in those three days and three nights, why? Why did I disobey God? Why? What was I thinking? I can't run away from God. Why did I not 
go to Nineveh. That's, that's the setting. That's Jonah's desperation. That's where he finds himself when he is praying this prayer. And it, perhaps you are here this morning and you find yourself in a similar situation to Jonah. Now, praise God, none of us find ourselves inside of a fish this morning. But perhaps spiritually, you have been rebelling against God or you have been disobeying God. And you are here this morning and you're just so tired of yourself and feeling guilty and you're weighed down and you feel in darkness and despair. Or maybe you're not you're not in constant sin, but we all fail, don't we? We all fall short. And when we do, we can often feel this way, guilty and down and dark. And if, if you do feel like that this morning, Jonah 2 is for you. Jonah 2 is for us. It is nothing but hope and good news for us. So let's look together at the first two verses of Jonah chapter 2. My first point is simple. Jonah prays and God answers. If you're taking notes, first point is simple. Number one, Jonah prays and God answers. Look at verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. Now, before we go on to verse two, let's just stop right there. Notice how it starts. Then, after all these things that I just mentioned, after going through the storm, after being in the fish, after just dealing with his sin and guilt, then Jonah prays to the Lord, his God. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, Jonah's been doing nothing but run away, running away from God. And now, in, in his utter desperation, he's got nowhere else to turn. Now he cries and he prays to his God. And think about that, too. Just don't take it for granted. He prays. Who's he praying to? He's praying to the very God who he has just rebelled against. He has blatantly disobeyed God. He's just turned his back on God. He's foolishly tried to run away from God. And yet now, he prays to the very God whom he has rebelled against. I mean, just think of the audacity to do that. Who does he think he is? Have you ever felt this way, though? I know I know, I have. You ever felt so far from God because of your own sin and shame because of disobedience or deep, dark trials. It almost feels, feels wrong to cry out to him. Like, how can I cry out to God? Why, why would God listen to me after what I've done? Why would, why would he rescue me? And yet we see that Jonah does this. He cries out to God. Listen to what he says in his prayer. Verse 2, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Brothers and sisters, we have a God who hears us. Amen? He hears us. Jonah here has rebelled against God. He has disobeyed God. He has turned his back on God. And yet, the moment that Jonah turns to God in humility, in desperation, we're told that God hears him. If you get nothing else out of this sermon, if after like this period you just fall asleep, which is okay, if you do that, just if you get one thing from the sermon, get, get this, brothers and sisters, God hears you when you come to him. 
He hears you when you come to Him. No matter how you have rebelled against God, no matter how you have disobeyed God, when you turn to Him and you cry out to God, He hears you. What an amazing, loving, powerful, merciful God we have. I mean, just just think of who God is and who you are. Here's God. He's the king of all the universe. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. He's absolutely holy. He has to judge sin. He's, he's created everything. And we are sinful humans, mere specks of dust in, in the cosmos of eternity, in the grand scheme of things, very insignificant. And yet, when you personally, when I, Dan Pew, when I go to God and I cry out to him, he hears me. David Platt, a pastor, when speaking on prayer and speaking on God, hearing us says this, when you pray, all of heaven is shouting. Do you realize who you're talking to? Do you realize what you are doing? You're talking to God. Thousands of you at one time talking to God. He was at a big conference of many pastors praying at one time. He says, and God is listening. Sure, he's upholding Mars at the same time. Trillions of other stars that he knows by name. He's sustaining every organ of 7.2 billion people on the planet. But you have God's attention when you pray. Brothers and sisters, praise God for his mercy Praise God that he hears us. And and just remember too, he hears Jonah when Jonah is turning and confessing his sins to God, even though Jonah has rebelled against God. Sometimes, I know I feel this way often, when you are gripped by your own sin, by your own failures, by the darkness that is surrounding you, did you ever feel like you have to make it up to God before you can come to God? Maybe you feel like, I just need to clean myself up a little bit before I can approach God. <laughs> I used to be tempted with like, you know what, I'm going to read my Bible for three days, and then I'll, I'll come to God, and he'll be a little bit more approving of me. No, brothers and sisters, Jonah here is in the midst of his rebellion, and all he does in his desperation is he cries out to God, and God is merciful, and God hears him. So, when you've when you've looked at that screen for like the hundredth time and you've lusted one more time, turn to God. Cry out to Him. He will hear you. When you're struggling with bitterness and anger is winning the day and you you can't let go of anger, don't wait till you feel clean. Don't wait to try to make it up to God. Come to God. Turn to Him. Cry out to Him. Humbly repent. He hears you. Teenagers, when, when, you, when you're like, I can't believe I have to obey my parents again. Don't, they just, they don't know. I know better. Ah, I, I, I don't want to obey them. I don't want to do what I'm told. I, maybe it's laziness in school or it's, it's children, you're, you're tempted or you're, you're laughing at children or at things that you shouldn't be laughing at in school. You can turn to God. You can come to God and confess to Him and cry out to Him. And here we see that He will hear you when you come to Him. And if you are here this morning and you do not know God, if you have not been saved from your sins, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, can I just ask you, 
Who do you cry out to? Who, who does your soul cry out to this morning if you do not know God? When you feel the, the pressures of life overwhelming you and you feel dirty and, and not good enough and you just can't measure up and, and family and friends ultimately can't measure up to the, the overwhelming feeling of life, who do you cry out to? Friend, if that is you this morning, cry out to God. For the first time, cry out to him. He wants to save you from this, your sins. And when you cry out to him, he will hear you. He will forgive you of your sins. Even this morning, if you have never done so, cry out to him. He's calling you to do so. Let's continue on, though. Point number two, we saw, number one, Jonah prays and God answers. Number two, we see Jonah's predicament and God's sovereignty. Jonah's predicament and God's sovereignty. Look at with me at verses three through six. <clears throat> For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple." The waters encompassed me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And Jonah here, in these verses, he's he's describing the predicament in which he found himself. He describes first his, his physical predicament. He says... In verse 3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, the floods surrounded me. Verse 5, the waters encompassed me, even to my soul, the deep closed around me, weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountain, the earth with its bars wrapped around me forever. Basically what Jonah is saying here, I think what happened is, I don't think that the storm When Jonah was thrown in, I don't think the storm immediately stopped when he hit the water. I think it did stop soon enough that the sailors were aware that it was Yahweh stopping the storm. But here, Jonah clearly is telling us of this this physical predicament that he found himself. He's, He's struggling against the waves. He's talking about the seas coming over him. Apparently, Jonah was was swimming for his life, and he was drowning. He says in verse 5 that he started not only as he's swimming, but eventually he succumbs, and he, he starts going down. There's weeds that are wrapped around his head. He says he goes to the, the roots, the foundations of the mountains in verse 6. So clearly, Jonah is, is overwhelmed by the storm. He's no longer able to stay above swimming. He's starting to drown. He's starting to go down. You get this almost claustrophobic sense, like everything is pressing in around him as he's drowning down in the deep. And then the fish comes and swallows him. So that's his, his physical predicament. And look at with me also at verse 4, though, as we see Jonah's spiritual predicament. Because it's not only the physical, right? It's not, it's not just that he was drowning, but we also see his spiritual predicament, which Jonah is reflecting upon as he's in the fish, and he's telling us in his prayer. Look at verse 4. It says, Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Jonah is telling us here, 
also his, his spiritual predicament. He's saying that he has been cast out of God's sight. Now, it, it isn't like God is the one casting Jonah out of God's sight, but rather it's, it's Jonah's actions have separated him from God. That's, that's the idea here. He's been cast away from the presence of God. His, his relationship with God has been broken, and he has been cast out of God's sight. Also, just think about, there's that image there. It says in, it's verse 5, it says, the waters encompass me even to my soul. So it's, it's the waters, yes, were above him, but that's also reflecting what's going on inside Jonah. I was talking to my brother Joel about this passage. Joel was here several years ago. He preached a couple times, and I get to quote my brother in a sermon. But Joel said, in a way, Jonah's physical experience mirrors his spiritual existence. He is physically drowning in water while at the same time spiritually drowning in guilt and shame, eventually ending in desperation and defeat in the stomach of the great fish. So Jonah's physical circumstances that he finds himself in also reflect his spiritual circumstances. And we, we talked about this, right? It's not just that he almost drowned, but he's also overwhelmed by guilt as he's inside of the fish. He's overwhelmed by his own sin, by his disobedience. He, he clearly is telling us that here in these verses. And yet, the second part of point two, it's not just Jonah's predicament, but Jonah is very aware of God's sovereignty in his predicament. He's very aware that these circumstances that are happening to him are coming from God. Now think of the theme of Jonah Jonah again. Nineveh will be rescued, and how will Nineveh be rescued? It will be done so through Jonah and Jonah here is starting to understand that maybe it's, it's God is starting to work in him. God is starting to, to turn Jonah towards himself. He clearly says, look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seeds, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. So, we get here a glimpse into God's sovereignty, into the way God's work, God works. Think about chapter 1. It was clearly the sailors who threw Jonah into the sea. We know that from the account. The sailors threw Jonah into the sea, and yet Jonah here is saying, you cast me into the sea, O God. He understands that, yes, the sailors were merely secondary characters. All the while, God is the primary, he's the protagonist behind it all, directing all these things. It's God's billows, it's God's waves that passed over him. Brothers and sisters, we have a God who ordains and works all things for us. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness, says the Lord. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no Handles, Lamentations 3.37, Who has spoken, it came to pass? 
unless, unless the Lord has commanded it, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Or one more, Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Brothers and sisters, God is the one controlling the ship, the storm, the seas. It is his billows and his waves. And, and what's happening here is this is God's sovereign discipline we're seeing here. Remember, God is turning Jonah. He's working on Jonah. He's bringing Jonah back to himself. This is God's discipline that is working in Jonah. Martin Luther, reflecting on these verses, says, Jonah does not say the waves and the billows of the sea went over me, but thy waves and thy billows, because he felt in his conscience that the sea with its waves and billows was the servant of God and of his wrath to punish sin. So, brothers and sisters, if God so moved the wind, the storm, the waves, the sea, the fish, if he is involved in ordaining these things to to discipline Jonah and bring Jonah back to himself, what, how is he working in your life, in these ordinary circumstances of your life? How is he working to bring, to bring you back to himself? I mean, these are ordinary things, right? Some of them are supernatural, but after all, they are water and wind and, and a fish They're just ordinary circumstances that God is clearly in control of, clearly using as discipline to bring Jonah back to himself. So, you know, maybe it's cancer or or sickness or maybe it's gas prices these days or car trouble, tensions in relationships or lack of employment, future uncertainty, any, any host of these things. Perhaps God is doing these things and he's working on your behalf in your life to cause you to realize your sin as he's doing with Jonah and to turn you back to himself. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that all hardships come from discipline of sin. Not every time you get sick is it God punishing you for sin. And yet we know that all things do come from God, whether it's discipline or just good gifts. All of them come from God and they are for our good. Notice with me, it's not like God is just doing this to Jonah. It's not like God is just, yes, he is sovereign. He does control all things, but he's not this tyrannical monster who's just ordaining all things with no purpose, no end, just to show his ultimate power. Yes, he is powerful, and we believe so. Yes, God is sovereign and can control the waves, and he can, can and does control all things in your life. And yet, this is sovereign discipline, but there's a purpose behind us. He's not doing this to Jonah. He doesn't do these things to us. He does these things for us. There's a purpose behind discipline. There's a purpose behind God's sovereign control of these elements and these circumstances in Jonah's life. And that purpose aims towards restoration and it ultimately aims toward deliverance. And brothers and sisters, whatever God is using in your life, to get you to realize your sin as he is with Jonah and to grab you and to turn you back to himself, whatever it is God is using, he's doing so with a purpose. And that purpose is restoration. He wants you to come back to him. He wants 
to deliver you from your sin. Now we see third point and final point in verses 7 through 10. Jonah's repentance and God's deliverance. Again, as I just mentioned, there's a, there's a point to God's discipline. There's, there's a purpose to it, and it's restoration and it's deliverance. And in these last few verses, we see that God's purposes become accomplished in Jonah. And I call it Jonah's repentance because even though Jonah, he's, he's not outright confessing his sin to God, but you'll see as we read 7, 8, and 9, there's been this drastic change in Jonah from the Jonah of chapter 1 who all he did was rebel and sin against God. Do you realize in the first chapter, the only time Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, by the way, the only time he even acknowledges God even speak, he doesn't speak to God, he just acknowledges, is when he's in the boat and the storm comes and he says, hey, it's, it's my God and who's causing this storm and it's, it's my fault. That's the only time in all of the first chapter that he even recognizes God. Everything else is just turning his back on God and just rebelling against him. Well, here we see Jonah's repentance. God's discipline has worked in Jonah. He has turned him, he has renewed him to himself. Look at verse 7. Jonah says, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you. With the voice of thanksgiving, I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. In verse 7, Jonah has this confession of truth. He says, when my soul fainted within me, when I was, basically when I was at my wit's end, then I remembered the Lord. I turned back to the Lord. There's a sense of remembering, of turning, of repentance, coming back to God. And he says, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Now, I forgot to mention it in verse 4, but the the last phrase of verse 7 and the last phrase of verse 4 in the Hebrew are actually the same exact phrase. They just translate it a little bit different. But they're saying, he's saying here, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple, or another way, like 4 says it, yet I will look again towards your temple. Basically what Jonah is saying here, to the contrast of being cast away from God's sight in verse 4, he has this confidence and this hope that his prayers are coming before God himself. Think about the Old Testament context. In the Old Testament, the place where God was, was the temple. That's where God dwelt. If you wanted to come to God, you had to become one of his people, you had to come to the temple. Not only that, think about what you had to do in the Old Testament in order to be cleansed from your sin, which Jonah wants. You had to go to the temple. You had to sacrifice. A lamb had to take your place. Its blood covered your guilt. That's basically what Jonah's saying in verse 4 and in verse 7, especially saying, when my soul fainted away, I remembered God and, and my prayer went up to his holy temple. Or more simply put, my prayer went up to God, to where God is. There's this sense of of renewal in his relationship with God. It's like that relationship was broken and now it's being restored. He has this confident assurance that he will look upon the temple. He, his prayers will get to the temple. In other words, they'll get to God. 
His prayers are being heard by God. His relationship with God here is being restored. Then he, he, he finishes his prayer by this declaration of thanksgiving and praise. He says in verse 8, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. In other words, he's saying those who put their hope in something that isn't God, namely idols, if you put your hope in something that isn't God, you forsake the mercy that could be yours if your hope was in God. Now, isn't that a little tongue-in-cheek of Jonah? I mean, in, in all of chapter 1, all he's done is forsake God. His hope clearly wasn't in the Lord. His hope was in himself. He, he, he rebels against God. And yet here, again, you see his repentance. You see God's discipline working and turning Jonah back to himself. And he, he declares this truth that those who put their hope, who regard worthless idols, forsake their own hope that would be theirs if they hope in God. And brothers and sisters, we do this just like Jonah all the time too when we disobey God. We begin to, to regard other things rather than God. Whatever it is, idols in our life, we forsake our hope in God when we sin and we, we forsake that mercy that is found when our hope is found in God. And then verse 9, he ends his prayer. He says, But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So basically, this whole prayer can be summarized in that last phrase. Salvation is of the Lord. It's God who is saving and delivering Jonah. God who is disciplining Jonah. God who is turning Jonah back to himself. And now deliverance, Jonah knows, salvation Renewal, restoration, it comes from God himself. And again, notice with me this, this change in Jonah. He's, he's now sacrificing with thanksgiving to God. And not only that, he's, he's now he's, he's trying to fulfill these vows that he has vowed to God. There's this renewal, there's this commitment to God again. We're not told what vows it was that he broke, but perhaps it was his, his vows as a prophet of I will proclaim the word of the Lord. We're not sure exactly. What we do know is that God's discipline has worked in Jonah, has turned his heart, and now Jonah, in essence, he's, he's recommitting himself to God, and he's saying, those vows which I have made, I will make good on them again. Salvation is of the Lord. And then verse 10, which is one of the favorite verses for little kids, the fish vomits Jonah out onto dry land. But again, verse 10 is basically the the physical expression of what Jonah says in his last phrase, salvation is of the Lord. And sure enough, just think again, God's going to rescue Nineveh. He will do it. And he will do it through Jonah, even though Jonah was headed in the complete opposite direction. And he takes Jonah through the fish and he disciplines him and he turns Jonah to himself and Jonah turns to God. And because of that, now the fish vomits Jonah onto dry land and God delivers Jonah, which is what he aims to do in our lives, brothers and sisters, when he disciplines us. Do you realize that every time God disciplines you as a loving father who disciplines his children, his aim is for you to be restored and he wants to deliver you from where you're at. He wants to deliver you from your sin. And praise God, whether we are delivered 
now or we know that one day, one day we will be delivered from this body of death, as Paul says. We will be ultimately delivered from our sin. But Jonah, we see here, he's delivered from the the fish, and we'll see whoever it is preaches chapter 3. We'll see that God recommissions him to go to Nineveh and to preach mercy as the whole theme of the book shows. But I think it appropriate to close very quickly by turning to Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. Turn with me, please, to Matthew 12, 38 through 42, because the whole point of the Old Testament and the whole point of the story of Jonah, this historical account, the whole point is to point us to Jesus. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jesus tells us that himself in Matthew 12, 38. He says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. So it's happening here. The scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we want a sign from you. And Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh. You adulterous, sinful generation, no sign is going to be given to you except for the sign that is already there in scriptures, which is the sign of Jonah. Jesus clearly here is is showing them that the whole point of the narrative of Jonah is to point to the greater Jonah. He says Jonah was there and yet a greater than Jonah is here. And Jonah is meant to point us to Jesus. Just think of the similarities, some of the similarities. Jonah goes into a boat, he goes down, he falls asleep, and a storm comes. Jesus also goes down into a boat, and he falls asleep, and a storm comes. But unlike Jonah, who ultimately is thrown into the storm, Jesus, being the greater Jonah, has power over the storm, and all he says is, be still, and the storm calms. Or, Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days and and three nights, And Jesus clearly says here, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, I will be in the grave three days and three nights. But unlike Jonah, who's vomited onto the dry land and is delivered, Jesus not only is delivered from death, but Jesus conquers death himself. Jesus also, like Jonah, Jonah preaches repentance to Nineveh. And he he preaches to that great city. And Jesus, being the greater Jonah, not only preaches repentance to Nineveh, but he preaches repentance to the whole world. And Jesus not only preaches repentance, but he offers forgiveness to the whole world. And the reason he can offer forgiveness is because in contrast to Jonah, who disobeys God, Jesus, being the greater Jonah, perfectly obeys the Father. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father, came down, humbled himself, took on flesh, and was obedient to the Father, to God, even to the point of death and to the death on the cross. So, brothers and sisters, the reason we can do these things that Jonah does in this prayer is because of the greater Jonah 
which is Jesus. Think about it. The reason you can cry out to God as Jonah did is because he is now your father and he is your father because of what Jesus Christ has done. The reason we can have confidence that God is ordaining all these things in our life and he's sovereignly disciplining us is because we're told in Romans 8 that God works all things, all things together for good to who? To those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Jesus works all things for good. And friend, if you are here again this morning and you don't know this Jesus, you don't know this Savior, this morning is God's mercy to you because Jesus is offering repentance to you just as Jonah preaches repentance to Nineveh. You can come to Jesus this morning. He has died in your place. He has paid the penalty that you could never pay. And you can come to him this morning. You can turn from your sins. You can confess your sins to him and believe in him. And he will rescue you as he did Jonah. He will forgive you of your sins. Let's pray. Father, We, as Jonah, cry out even now, whether we're in sin or living in obedience, we cry out to you and we know that you hear us. We praise you, Father, for hearing us. We praise you for your word. We praise you for this story. We praise you for Jesus, who's the greater Jonah. We praise you that he has come to earth as we celebrate this time of year and he has died in our behalf. Thank you, Father, for your wonderful mercy, your steadfast grace and love that we see in this account. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.